today on Tea and Teaching. The aim really is to get information out of our working memory, which is small, and transfer into long-term memory, which is large. Uh, and unfortunately, that transfer doesn't always happen. And there's a range of reasons that transfer doesn't happen. Uh, and there's a number of things we can do to help facilitate that transfer. And that's really what cognitive load theory is all about, is how do we help avoid working memory being overloaded? And how do we help facilitate the transfer of information from working memory in, into long-term memory? Learning new things and getting better is one of the biggest predictors of confidence and motivation. Uh, like it fuels confidence and motivation. It's a great uh, predictor of, of it. So absolutely, it's a big human desire to improve. What I used to suggest was that we model our thought process. So I get an exam paper or I'm on the three point line in basketball or whatever the thing is. And I go, let me narrate what my thought process is here. And I actually now realise that's kind of probably the wrong approach because we don't really want to model my thought process because I'm not even aware of my thought process now. Welcome to Tea and Teaching, the educational podcast you can listen to in your tea break. I'm Arthur Moore and with me, as always, it's Mike Harrowell. Hi, Mike. Hello, Arthur Moore. Is that all you've got? Excellent. That's Good it. start to the chat, Mike. Um, we make it nice and short and sweet. Hello. Awesome. Anything you've been listening to you want to recommend to the listeners at all? Yeah, I've got a great recommendation. As per always, it's a podcast. Um, but I've, I've stumbled across an amazing podcast that has already been recognised as the number one podcast last year, and I've just stumbled across it. It's called A Slight Change of Plans uh, with Maya Shankar. Uh, very, very good. 30, 40-minute episodes. Uh, she is a behavioural scientist um, and she talks to different people about their experiences and, and how you can kind of make change to other people's lives as well as your own. So that would be my recommendation. And what about yourself? BBC Sounds, 10-part series on Putin. Eight hours of incredibly hardcore geopolitical chat with some of the leading people in the field. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, we're recording this in like April for people listening. And so obviously it's very topical. Um, but I learnt a lot, which I like to do, Mike. Another light-hearted recommendation from Arthur Moore. So with that, should we get into it? Yeah, Mike. Today we're going to be joined by Bradley Bush from uh, Inner Drive. He's a psychologist. We're going to be talking about the science of learning, amongst other things, as well as a bit of focus on cognitive load theory. So go put the kettle on, get your tea brewing, come back, and we'll chat with Bradley. <laughs> Welcome back to Teen Teaching. We are joined by Bradley. Bradley, welcome to the pod. Hi, thanks for uh, yeah having me on. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Um, so for listeners who don't know who you are or what you do, can you give us a little background of, um, of what you do as part of Inner Drive? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I guess my background in education is quite unique and probably a bit different to, to most. Uh, I actually started in working in sports. Uh, so I'm a sports psychologist by trade, uh, so working mainly with premiership footballers and Team GB athletes. And over time, my role was to use, like, see if we could use psychological research to help improve performance. And over time, became more interested in helping my athletes just become better learners. Uh, and so a lot of the research that we were using at the time 
didn't come from sports psychology, came from educational psychology. Um, so as a company, we kind of migrated a bit from sport to education. Um, as a result of kind of reading this research, my colleague Edward and I wrote a book called The Science of Learning, uh, and uh, which covers the most interesting studies that we think everyone, every teacher uh, should know about. And now we run, um, we do a lot of CPD around cognitive science and teaching and learning, uh, and do a lot of student workshops around motivation, resilience, study habits, um, really just aimed at helping everyone think and learn a bit better, really. Yeah, it's amazing. And amazing the, the stuff that you guys do and how you support schools. So oh, thank you on behalf of education <laughs> for what you what you do. Mike um, speaks on behalf of education from now. Yeah, on. That, yeah. that's that's a good that's impressive. Yeah. Self-appointed Minister of Education. <laughs> um so lit, we've done some podcasts on cognitive science, um, but something we've we've not really focused on quite in detail as we'd like to is cognitive load theory so for people listening and involved in education um what is it and, and how can we kind of maximize learning through the knowledge that we have of cognitive load theory uh yeah okay so it's it's one of these i think it's a theory that sounds really impressive uh with quite a grand title uh, and then when you actually get into it it's actually quite common sense, I think, a lot of it when you think about it, but its implications are quite varied. So there's quite a lot of different teaching strategies. So to just completely massively oversimplify it, uh, I guess the basic principle is that most people are well, like working memory is really limited. Uh, it gets overloaded really quickly. Um, and there's loads of different sort of tests that you can do to like just demonstrate just how quickly people forget stuff. Um, and on the flip side, long-term memory is so big, we probably can't even quantify it. Uh, you can remember stuff from decades ago that's kicking around in your brain that you probably haven't even thought of. So like, if I said to you, what was your favorite TV show as a child? Like somewhere, the thought of like the cartoon Banana Man is like lurking somewhere. And you haven't thought about it in like 20 or 30 years. And so the aim really is to get information out of our working memory, which is small and transfer into long-term memory which is large uh, and unfortunately that transfer doesn't always happen and there's a range of reasons that transfer doesn't happen uh, and there's a number of things we can do to help facilitate that transfer and that's really what cognitive load theory is all about is how do we help avoid working memory being overloaded and how do we help facilitate the transfer of information from working memory in, into long-term memory and it's one of those things that as a teacher i think we've all experienced like oh you can do it. You can do it. You just did it. Five minutes later. Oh, they, you can't remember. Or the next next lesson. How many times have you started lesson with the kids just going, what are we doing? And you're like, but we did this. And that's it's that and, and transfer I, and from short term yeah. to long term, isn't it? And I, I used to take that really personally when I used to teach. I thought it was a reflection of me as, as a practitioner of, you know, I taught you this last week, but yet you don't remember it. Is that because I haven't taught it well? Uh, and truth be told, looking back, that is definitely part, that was part of it. Uh, but it was also, it's that's just kind of human biology, it's cognitive architecture. Like we don't remember lots of information uh, and yet there are things we can do. And that's really what, what cognitive theory looks at is what can we do to help reduce that overload and to facilitate that, that transfer. So can I, like, I was thinking when I was reading up on this before the pod of like some of the stuff I did as an early teacher. And I remember being told, if you make your lessons memorable, they'll remember the learning and then they'll remember how to do things. Now, I remember as a math teacher being like, oh, we'll do all this exciting stuff to work out 
this maths theory and that will help them remember it. And what I ended up realizing was a couple of lessons. All they remembered was the fun stuff and they couldn't yeah. actually remember the processing. So is that, is that something that, is that something that just I did? Am I an awful uh, so, person? I mean, my, my, my favorite example of this is I once spent hours and hours making the most beautiful who wants to be a millionaire PowerPoint. You know, I had the sound effects and, you know, all the, the animations and the students loved it. And I'm pretty sure I got graded as an outstanding lesson for that one as well by my observer at the time. And yet blatantly, if you ask the students a week or two later, what do they remember? They're like, we played Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And they didn't remember any of the actual question and the content because the, the animation, like the bells and whistles, was what stuck in the mind, not the information. Um, interesting enough, like, so that's one of the effects that gets talked about in cognitive load theory called coherency effect, uh, which is uh, people remember the shiny details uh, and, and like the sparkly, exciting stuff uh, and often not the content. And because working memory is so limited, you don't know what stuff sticks. And so I didn't, I couldn't be sure what was sticking, which was my content that I wanted, or if it was the cool animation and the sound effects when they got the, when they locked in their answer. Uh, and so, so that coherency effect is really looking at, therefore, focus on what's important, uh, which I think sounds really obvious and common sense, but it's amazing how often we get caught up in trying to make stuff fun and exciting and actually do so at the cost of reducing the potential for learning uh, and so that's definitely one of the effects around cognitive load theory it's the balance isn't it i remember when i was training and in my early as a teacher very similar to you arthur it was like if i can engage them then the learning will be a byproduct of that engagement um yeah. when in fact actually all we're doing is just overloading their their senses yeah, and like, like engagement kind of gets like a bad reputation uh, these days sometimes that work because sometimes you see it as like the opposite of learning. Like, I think you can, obviously, we do want students engaged in, in the learning. But I think when we look back, most of us would say, when we're learning stuff and we can see we're getting better and we're really immersed in that learning, like that learning is engaging. Uh, so it's, always, it's not a case that we want to maximise engagement and sneak some learning in there. Like engagement often comes as a consequence of learning and therefore that then looks at stuff like scaffolding which is a big part of cognitive load theory is how do we reduce support as people get better as their long-term memory schemas develop and so engagement I, I think now comes from learning as opposed to trying to sneak the learning into it we always used to try and make fun lessons that pupils would learn something from rather than focusing on the, the act of learning from that yeah. student they will they will get something from they might not call it fun because it's not on TikTok. it's not exciting it's not got as well but we like learning i think we all enjoy learning and i've i've not spoken to a pupil who would say like i hate learning new things <laughs> they might say i don't like this i don't like maths i don't like pe but they wouldn't say i i hate learning new things yeah and actually if you look in the research and i agree completely if you look in the research learning new things and getting better is one of the biggest predictors of confidence and motivation uh like it fuels confidence and motivation it's a great uh predictor of, of it so absolutely it's a big human desire to improve uh insight here's where it gets a bit complicated in psych research they often talk about mastery so in in psych research mastery is about getting better measuring yourself against your previous goals essentially it's like self-reference behavior whereas i know sometimes in teaching mastery teaching sometimes means something else like a different sort of method of, of teaching but in, in the psych research mastery this 
getting better and learning new things is massively associated with motivation and confidence. Yeah, like achieving leads to that motivation to want to do more. Yeah, we spoke about this before, like not the other way around. We always get kids motivated and they will achieve, but the achievement is a motivation in, in itself. And when I was reading that research, that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me because I thought, especially as a psychologist, I had to motivate you. I had to get you to want to learn. Uh, and so I thought motivation preceded success, if you like, whereas actually, as you say, it's bi-directional and, and more so, more powerful that success leads to motivation it, it is the better predictor. It's so interesting. Quite a lot of these misunderstands we have are just from early studies that just didn't got the correlation wrong. But all about correlation and causation and just didn't quite get that link right and they've just be kind of become part of the teaching language mike you've been into a lot of lessons you've done a lot of observations you're a very good teacher yourself like when you're looking at a lesson how hard is it to kind of differentiate between kids who are learning and kids who are just having fun it's the difference between active learning and passive learning i think lots of students will sit there and nod along and, and kind of talk about what they're supposed to talk about, but it it's the application. Can you take it? Can you synthesize it yourself? And can you apply it to a, a context or maybe a multiple contexts? for me is what I'm looking for. And if students are doing that, you feel it in a room, don't you? When there's a high degree of learning, but I've also seen it in lessons where students are bombarded with, um, images sounds information you know too much writing on a powerpoint or something like that um and i'm assuming bradley that that's kind of overload of the senses and that actually would have a negative impact on learning yeah uh like it's, it's interesting when you think about how powerpoint is probably the number one tool that people use as a vehicle for teaching uh and i i, I quite like some aspects of powerpoint so i'm not anti or anything but powerpoint was never designed for learning and chance of long-term information. And so not only was it, it was designed for like short meeting presentations. Uh, and so not only was it not designed for it, but I don't know about you guys, I, I was never exposed, I never heard of many people, if any, talk about getting trained as a teacher and how to do really good PowerPoint slides. Uh, and yeah, we spend lots of time designing this learn, lesson and learning through PowerPoint. So yeah, number of words on a slide uh, is, is a classic one. Um, different types of animation. So the worst animations for me. So some research has suggested that when the animation is directly relevant to the learning, like if you're going from, if you want to narrate going from A to B because of something, and then you move, like you animate that the line goes from A to B, that's kind of part of the story and the narrative. When the animation is irrelevant to the learning, then it becomes redundant. Uh, and so the worst two for me by mile is, I hate it when people spin the words around on, PowerPoint because no one reads like that uh and then the worst one is when the words you know when they drop off the slide like they bounce off uh and again everyone's just kind of waiting for that animation to finish before we then all like move on it doesn't really serve a purpose uh and yeah so not only do they not help learning so they're not very effective they're not very efficient without time because they take ages to produce these sort of material uh and time is, I think, the most precious resource in, in education. And so anything that doesn't help learning and it hinders the amount of time that I have spare, it's actually really liberating when you start reading about stuff like cognitive load theory because it actually frees you to focus on hopefully what's going to have more impact. 
It's about me redesigning all of my PowerPoints. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do mind? literally, uh, and it's, it's no one's fault as such, because if you don't, if you have never been trained, why would you be great at anything that you haven't specifically been trained at? But you do look at PowerPoint slides and from a design perspective and a cognitive overload perspective, uh, once you're aware of the theory, you kind of just see it everywhere, I think. What's bizarre is if we're in teacher training, like, and we get a PowerPoint with all those animations, we go out and we go like, what a rubbish PowerPoint. It's so overdone. I'm just going to go and design my lesson on PowerPoint and put loads of animations in. Like, we do so many things in teaching that we moan about if we try and uh, learn that way. A hundred percent. And like another one is interesting, like PowerPoint, it isn't a script for the lesson. That's not the function of PowerPoint. If you need to have lots of information, and sometimes you do need to share lots of information, like that's where handouts are really helpful because there's like a permanent record of it. But just like a PowerPoint should really be a prompt as opposed to a script. And sometimes I did this earlier in my career. Maybe it was due to my own insecurities as an educator. I was like, I just make sure I put everything on there because at least that way I know I can mentally tick the box that I've shared information, but that's not the same as information being learned, really. I remember trainers teaching, they, you have to have every three minutes planned. I was like, but right. what if what if something changes? You, you should have planned for every three minutes. Yeah. And like, just no, so you, and then you spend so much time on your plan that you, you want to stick to the plan because it's taking you four hours to plan. Like you need to stick to the plan. Um, just to take it back a little bit, Bradley, talking about kind of working memory. If you could help, if like there was one thing you would want all teachers to know that they could help with this idea of working memory, like what would it be? What's that kind of one thing we need to know? Uh, uh, I've put you on the spot. Yeah, uh, I think, isn't it now it's time for like a tea break, isn't it? Uh, now yeah, do you know what? Yeah, yeah, let's, no, do it, Brad. <laughs> let's, let's go for a tea break. Everyone <laughs> go and get a custard cream. Mike's going to go and get a nice rich tea, I think. Um, and when we come back, Bradley's going to answer the big question. We'll see you in a moment. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. Bradley, you've had a custard cream. You've had a rich tea. Mike's filled up his tea bag. He's ready to go. So we want to know, working memory, what do we need to know? Uh, it's amazing. I was only joking for the record when I said that before. Um, so uh, what's the one thing I think everyone needs to know? Uh, it's probably way more it's it's way less re robust and resilient than we think like it's so easy to overload working memory uh and this leads i think we tend to make too many assumptions that what we've said has resonated or been understood because working memory can be overloaded for a number of reasons if you're really tired if you're really stressed if i throw too much information at you uh like on a basic level if i if i give you a string of digits now if i go like three a four, seven, six, four, two, three, nine, seven, four. If I was to ask you what was the eighth digit on that list, like there's almost no way you can get that right. And yet you've only heard those, those numbers just like 20 seconds ago. Like, so within 20 seconds, you can overload working memory. Uh, so on a basic level, um, and this sounds really basic, getting students to write stuff down, I think is really important because the amount of students you go, yeah, I know, I know that, I'll remember to do that later. And then they forget um, it would be one. Uh, I think regular checking for understanding is really important, um, partly because this working memory is so easily overwhelmed and partly because there's, um, there's a concept called uh, the curse of expertise, which basically says 
once you're an expert, once you know something, it's really hard to ever remember life before you knew that thing. Like it's really hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know how to do quadratic equations or doesn't know the rules of basketball or whatever the thing is. Once you know it, you kind of, it's really hard to remember what it was like to not know it. So because working memory is really easily overwhelmed and because we kind of assume that they remember as much as, or know as much as we do, it's really important to go back and consistently review stuff. And I think when it comes to working memory, it's kind of linked to like the spacing effect is sometimes going back and reviewing stuff feels like a step backwards, where we, especially when there's a lot in our curriculum, we want to always feel like we're progressing and moving forward and actually spending more time reviewing stuff because working memory has probably been overwhelmed. In the short term, it takes a lot of time, but I think in the long term, it actually saves quite a lot and is a much more efficient and effective way of, of teaching. It's something that's been talked about I've, so many times in the maths like meetings, like because maths builds on each other, we go like, oh, the, the students just don't have the skills from year seven. Oh, we better just just plow, plow forward. And no, like, no, we need to kind of make sure they've got those skills. Um, Mike, you were going to jump in there. I was just going to say, we, we've all taught those students who, who kind of have, trying to think the right term, learned helplessness in a way where yeah. they, they've, they're so far behind the learning that they kind of feel um, no matter what they do, they won't kind of re reduce that kind of problem space between where they need to be and where they currently are. They can't visualise the path through. Um, so I was going to ask you in terms of, I know we, we spoke to Kate Jones about retrieval practice and I know we, we spoke briefly with Jade about it as well, Jade Pierce. Um, are there any tricks and tips that, that we can do as classroom teachers to make sure that we don't leave students behind? Or is it just constantly revisiting um, old topics and old information and, and working on that retrieval practice in our own lessons? Yeah, so like, uh, it's not a very glamorous answer, but essentially, where I'm kind of at with this sort of learned helplessness and to the extent feel failure and how do we help students catch up uh, essentially is the acknowledgement and this comes from cognitive load theory that novices do learn very differently from experts. Uh, experts have these refined schemas so that they can draw on whereas novices don't and therefore it's really easy I think for novices to be overwhelmed at a task. Uh, and that's where for me with novices, things like direct instruction, although it's not very, you know, it's not as romantic as the idea of like guide, guide your discovery learning. Like it's, I think for me, it's really fundamental because like, there's another effect that's out there called the Matthew effect. So uh, the Matthew effect in the Bible is that the rich get richer. Uh, and the same is true for memory and knowledge. So like the more you know, the easier it is and faster it is to learn new things. So for me, who knows a lot about Tottenham Hotspurs, it's easy for me to add one new bit of information to that schema compared to someone who doesn't know anything about football. And so for novices, that's really important because the rate of learning gets further and further away and wider from those who are experts. And so you can see how that can lead to this learning helplessness when you look around and you go, everyone else is getting it. And why am I the only one who's not? And that way, I think that more at that stage, the direct instructions, maybe some worked examples become more important for novices or those who are struggling or new to a task because they need to start internalizing this model so that they can then eventually do it themselves. But left to their own devices, of course, you'd be overwhelmed if you have no reference point for that task. And I guess this is 
this is the argument in a way against um, kind of discovery learning, project-based learning before you've got the raw knowledge to do that is that as a novice learner in that topic or that subject is that that information just becomes overwhelming. And because you're not kind of an experienced learner, you don't have the selective attention to filter out all the, the information that's not necessary. And that becomes overwhelming for learners. Yeah, like on a really basic level for me, the way I always compare it, and I think that's spot on, is if you go on a page on Wikipedia that you have no idea about, and you know how like every key term is hyperlinked, so you can read about that. If you're constantly having to click on each hyperlink to understand the sentence, like you're never going to get anywhere because you just don't have that framework uh, in place. Uh, and so not only is it not a great way to do learning, just from a pastoral and well-being kind of perspective, it's really stressful uh, to go into a class, especially if you feel that stuff's publicly, like everyone can see it as well. It's just a really stressful environment to have to do learning. And what's one of, I think, the interesting counterintuitive concepts of learning is to develop independent learners you do less independent tasks to begin with. Like it's not a case of the more independent tasks you do, the more independent learning you like become. Uh, if that's, that's where that scaffolding comes of you start with direct instructions, you do work examples, then you maybe do completion tasks, and then you do independent tasks once they've built up that framework. But sometimes I think there's been a rush to, rush to do independent learning or independent tasks in the name of developing independent learners. And it has the exact opposite intended effect. And there's nothing less engaging, I imagine, as a student than going into a lesson and within two minutes being like, yeah. I, I'm already I'm already behind, as they may yeah. perceive it. I'm already out. So what's the point of me kind of keep going with this? Because I already don't understand it. And we've all, I think we've all done that as adults. We've all done things where we've gone like, oh, I, I can't do this. Like, and we just switch off. I, I think we, we say, don't we, oh, that student switched off. Like parents evening what can my son daughter do better are oh, they need to need to keep listening they need to stop switching off we we've all said those things um and maybe it's about thinking more how do we put ourselves in those students position like relearn anything and mike i was going to ask like again you've done lots of observations is it different when you go in a p lesson than like a a higher level maths lesson like your the way you observe the lesson no, i think you look at you look at teaching style and you look at the pedagogy within the lesson when you observe a lesson i think it's harder to look at whether the raw knowledge is being taught in the best way like i've been in a higher level maths lessons and it might as well have been a spanish lesson like i didn't know any of the terminology any of what i mean what the kids were doing was way more advanced than what i could do um i don't think yeah i I think once you've got the subject knowledge, you look at things in a different way, definitely. But I, I remember we had a conversation, Arthur, where I was invigilating a maths exam and you said to me, did you look at the paper? And it was, uh, it was the, the paper got progressively harder, right? Um, so it's like page one was like the easiest questions and the last page was the hardest ones. And I think I got to page three and I looked at page four and straight away, I was like, I have no idea. And I put the paper, I didn't even look further on in the paper. I, I put it down straight away. So I would 100% understand how the students feel if they get into a lesson and just like, no, I have no idea what's going on here. I switch off. So how do we overcome the fact that we are experts, Bradley, and be, think about it from a novice perspective? Like, 
Yeah, so this is why I think modeling a thought process becomes quite an interesting technique. What I used to suggest was that we model our thought process. So I get an exam paper or I'm on the three-point line in basketball or whatever the thing is, and they go, let me narrate what my thought process is here. And I actually now realize that's kind of probably the wrong approach because we don't really want to model my thought process because I'm not even aware of my thought process now. If I was to tell my toddler my thought process for tying my shoelaces, I couldn't do it because it's just so automatic to me now. I don't consciously know what my thought process is, but I want to model what I want his thought process to be. Uh, I think that's how we can help put ourselves in the in the shoes of a novice is we're not trying to teach it from our perspective. It's always trying to remember like trying to teach it from theirs. And that is difficult. And that's where I think the use of going back to checking for understanding, but also just generally lots of high quality questions in the classroom help us inform where your gaps in the knowledge are. And therefore I can target them specifically uh, because it just avoids any ambiguity, I guess, on my behalf. Just sometimes at the start of a lesson, just like, right, we're going to do some quick fire questions on your whiteboards, whatever, and you can really quickly ascertain who's maybe not quite got the core skills or think about it. I always found it was useful to kind of trying before the lesson being like looking at the first question maybe I've written down on a worksheet or something like that and trying to list everything that I knew the students need to do before that and then ticking off the stuff that I know they've automated I know they've automated basic addition but they may not have automated factorization so like and trying to list those things and then planning as you said planning for them to learn rather than me to teach yeah and I guess what you're kind of doing there and I guess what good practice is is you know I guess you're kind of preempting what you think some of the misconceptions or some of the gaps in knowledge might be. So therefore you'd be able to model the thought process in that situation. Mike, should we go for another quick biscuit break there? Go and get, you can get another rich tea. I think you should treat yourself. I'm going to get another custard cream. Uh, and when we're back, we'll keep talking to Bradley um, about all things learning. Welcome back. I hope that was a, a lovely biscuit break. Uh, we're still here with Bradley. Bradley, if I'm a parent and I'm listening to this and my child's working at home and they're trying to do their homework, but they got their phone on, the TV's on in the background. Um, you know, we've, we've just been through this kind of big period of working from home. Is that a really dangerous environment to try and do really focused work in? Is there a lot of kind of cognitive overload in that environment? And how can I, as a parent, support my child if that's the case? Yeah. Uh, so my favourite example of this. So whenever we go in and uh, drive into our student workshops, one of the questions I always ask students is, um, do you listen to music whilst doing your homework or revision? And I, I reckon quite easily it's probably about 75% would say they do. And it's really interesting because music, for example, can be good for, and they typically listen to music on their phone and we'll get onto phones, I guess, in a bit. But like, so with music is, it can be good for motivation. Like our favorite song makes us smile. Um, it's good when I go to the gym to block out the pain and boredom of being on a treadmill. Uh, but when it comes to like learning new or complex information, uh, there was a really lovely study done a few years ago. Um, and what they found was uh, students who revised in silence did better, I remembered a lot more. Uh, students who revised to music that had lyrics 
did significantly worse. And what I found really interesting was it didn't make a difference in the study if students liked the lyrics or not. So whether it's your favourite song or a song you hate, um, if it has lyrics, it hinders uh, overloads working memory, it competes for attention. Uh, and this is really interesting because lots of students will swear that listening to music helps them revise. And this is where it comes down to the big difference of what you prefer and what's best for you. And I always go like, my toddler prefers chocolate for breakfast, but I know that's not what's best for him. And that's a real interesting battle for parents to have because as the student, you're going, I know what works best for me. This is what I like. And yet you don't often know what works best for you. You just know what you like. Uh, and so stuff like music uh, has been found to have a huge degradation in learning uh, and memory. Um, you know, this is true, by the way, if you've ever been driving in your car, if you know where you're going, you can have music on, you can talk to someone. But the second you're lost, the first thing everyone does is, yeah, turn the music off, tell the person next to each other, shut up for a few minutes. Because when you need to think hard, it, it competes and it hurts to listen to music. Uh, mobile phones, I think, are a bit of a killer, personally. Um, I think we should, yeah, so this might be a bit too out there, but I, I think we should stop calling them mobile phones, if I'm really honest, because they don't make phone calls from them. Like most students, you can access amazing retrieval practice apps and you can go on Wikipedia to find information. Most students use their mobile phones for social media, gaming, watching YouTube or porn. Uh, and when you set it like that, I was so distracted when I was at school because Snake on the Nokia 3210 had just come out. And like, I spent hours playing bloody Snake uh, if you'd have given me the world of distractions at my fingertips with the best graphics and games, there's no way I'd have been able to focus. And it's just, for me, I, I mean, some studies, it's contested a bit, but some studies found just having your phone next to you, even if it's not on, leads to a drop in concentration and performance uh, because it makes you wonder about what everyone else is doing in the world. And so it's not a glamorous answer or a really trendy one, but like, the more you can reduce distractions like music, like mobile phone, uh, the less stressful it is and, and the more learning happens. No one says like, oh, I want to uh, read this book. What would be really useful is if I have Football Manager on my laptop open. <laughs> like, yeah. foot I would say Football Manager did more damage to my <laughs> my GCSEs than almost anything else. I, I, I tell you what, for me, it was a closer thing between Football Manager and FIFA. Uh, but I would just spend hours and hours and hours and... You know, and what's worse is like we just tell ourselves lies and delude ourselves into thinking that we're multitasking and that we're doing both. But but it just doesn't. It's not how the brain works. Does this come from to take something quite specific revision? Because we're so obsessed with how much we revise. Oh, I did seven hours revision today. I did eight hours revision day where really we should be focusing on the quality of the revision, the work we're doing rather than this fixation with time you hear students doing like did you revise i did six hours well did you revise solid no distractions for six because that's incredible that's yeah. incredible like i'd be amazed at that i like i was only able to revise properly for about 20 minutes before i would get distracted yeah. so i used to revise for 20 minutes and then go off and then come back yeah so it's i kind of equate that to kind of like going to the gym when people go like you hear some people go, I was at the gym for like three or four hours. And you're like, well, what were you possibly doing? Like, no gym session should take more than an hour. Like, it's just mad. Uh, and I haven't been able to find, of it. like, there isn't a study that I've been able to find that compares quantity versus quality. But what I find interesting is 
the go-to for revision is let's make a revision timetable and people map out how much stuff they're going to do, but they don't spend enough time. And this is our fault as educators. It's not even the student's fault, I don't think, but they don't spend enough time thinking about how they're going to revise. So it's not enough to go, I'll do maths in the morning and French in the afternoon. It's what are you doing when you're revising the maths? So is it the retrieval, spacing, are you doing some interleaving? Or is it just, you know, just... I, the classic one I used to do, I used to just read my notes over and over so I could then go like, look how many pages I've read today as my, I was equating that to how much I've learned, but like the two aren't the same. So yes, I think quality is important. I think quantity is also important, but I think what's encouraging for me is I now see it nationwide uh, in schools, students are being taught how to learn and how to study much more than they were when I was at school, uh, which I think is a really positive step forward. Yes, yeah, so though, I think we could do a whole separate pod on like phones and distractions, but basically, basically not have not being distracted makes you better at learning. That's my right. that's kind of my takeaway. Like, it's, it's it sounds ridiculous. Like, I'm putting it out there. Yeah, like all my like hours spent in the library doing my masters and hours spent researching and reading, like comes down to the kind of if you're not distracted, you learn better. But like it is that that is just true, but it's amazing how often that doesn't happen. Like common sense isn't that common when you're a teenager. And the other this thing is... I took away, Mike, was you don't need to go for more than an hour run. So your wife, who listens to every episode, <coughs> uh, should, can now say, Mike, you don't need to go for a long run. You can go for an hour. See you in a bit. Yeah, luckily she doesn't listen to the podcast. So. <laughs> I was going to say, glad to be of service to, to, your, to your marriage here. <laughs> She'll never know. Um, it's just, I, I know we keep saying it's common sense, but it's really hard when you're a teacher, isn't it? To When you're very busy and you know, you're trying to get through certain tasks and certain syllabus that you need to get through, just be able to stop and remind yourself how to keep learning really, really simple. Um, but like you said, have a structure. So have the, you know, revisit something we, we've done before or, or let's go back to the last lesson and, and work out what we do know, what we don't know. Let's have some direct instruction. Let's go and then um, give some independence, give some practice, you know, that kind of rose and shines principles approach. It, it can be as simple as that. And actually keeping it simple is the most effective way of, of delivering what we need to deliver. Yeah, and that's why I actually really so I love Rosenstein's principles because it's really hard to argue the opposite of any of them. Like it's hard to argue that we shouldn't check for understanding or that we shouldn't review learning. And yet some people feel that it's kind of stating the obvious, but for me, it's just a nice structure of what good practice looks like. And it's almost it gives me a bit of a structure that I can not work my way through the list in each lesson or anything like that, but it's just a good to come back to it's a time saver because I'm not getting distracted on inefficient things as much like my who wants to be a millionaire quiz. Uh, so yeah, I, I think a lot of this stuff does come down to time uh, and it can feel time heavy at the start when you're going through changes, I guess, as a practitioner, but it really does save time in the long run because what we typically see around this time of year, actually, especially in secondary schools and build up to exams is so many people having to completely reteach from scratch stuff they did in September and October, because if you haven't done that regular review and that spacing, you you feel you've almost got to begin from from the beginning with only a week or two before exams, and that's really stressful. Have have we overcomplicated being teachers and being te like? Have we tried to 
make lessons fun and engaging rather than just focusing on what makes good learning, which is surely what we're there to do? I mean, so it's hard for me to answer because I'm not a teacher. Uh, and so I always think it, it might not be, I don't know if I'm best place to say, I think it's gone the other way. I think teaching and learning is really complicated. Like you've got 30 students who are going through adolescence, uh, each at different levels, you need different levels of support. Uh, it's really hard to be a teacher and to know pedagogy and all the learning science. And somewhere along the way, I feel that education almost got infantilized and like we kind of treated like almost make it this fun entertainer stuff and you see that sometimes on inset days where it feels like gimmicky with a lot of the stuff whereas actually it is really hard I think and that's why debating research and what best practice means is really important and I think that's been one of the most encouraging things I've seen in the last five ten years in education is the embracing of an evidence base and we can always have debates around what counts as good evidence but I feel like the bar is being risen because we're not dumbing down, uh, which I think has happened uh, in the name of entertainment uh, or the appearance of learning. So I would always put on a show when I was being observed because I wanted it to look like learning was happening. Uh, and actually now I look back and I go, I now think awkward silences at times are really good in the classroom while students wrestle with long wait times to think about the answer to stuff. Whereas when I was being observed, I thought learning should look like it does in the movies of this inspirational leader. And that's going to be fun and captivating. And so I put on a show. Uh, so I don't know. On one hand, I think it can be simple, like avoid distractions. But on some basis, I think the debate around how to be a good teacher is, is quite a complicated one and, and a really interesting one. It's a really good one that the community is having, I think. So much to go away and think about there, Brad. I was going to say, that was a bit of a rant there, wasn't it? Sorry. No, I'm reflecting. I'm just thinking back to my early teaching days where I was literally being like, jump around, make some yeah. noise, be funny, make lots of jokes, and then maybe they'll learn some maths. Because um, <laughs> if kids like you as a person, yeah. or if kids, think you're, if kids think you're fun, then they'll definitely really like and get better at maths. And so do you want to say something really interesting on that? So I had the exact same thing. I thought if I didn't know enough, I could at least care the most uh, or, or try to be the most likable. And when we were writing, when we were researching the science of learning, I was dying to find a research paper that looked at teacher popularity or likability measured against student learning. Uh, I couldn't find one study that found the more you like someone, the more you learn from them. Uh, that's not to say the teacher-student relationship isn't really important. It really is. But for me, I now think it's more built around trust and consistency and reliability and high expectations as opposed to likability uh i think that's a really important distinction to make because it can help guide you and save you time and actually help your students more but i think that's one of the biggest myths in education that you learn more from the person if you like them i just I, it just doesn't bear out in the research from, from what i've read yeah we've we've spoken about this before haven't we i've been the teacher that the kids respect not right. that they like it's yeah that's not that's that's a really that's a really nice way of saying it. I might steal that. I thought Mike was going to say he doesn't like me, but he does respect me. And I was gonna I was gonna take that. I was gonna be quite happy. Yeah, he didn't even say that. <laughs> no, no, it's because he likes me so much. Uh, Bradley, thank you so much for your time. If people want to, people have listened. They're like, this is the guy. I'm <laughs> all in. Where can they go and find out more about you? What you do? Sign up <laughs> for whatever. 
Yeah, uh, so uh, I guess a good place for, to sign up for loads of free stuff. Uh, our website, innerdrive.co.uk, we have a whole ton of free resources, uh, mainly just because we got frustrated with so much myths and nonsense being peddled in education. We try to share as much free resources as we can that are what we hope are good evidence-based. Uh, so that's innerdrive.co.uk. Uh, we're on Twitter at inner underscore drive. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't actually know what my name is but i imagine there's we'll not too tag many, in something yeah i imagine there's not too many bradley bushes on on, on twitter uh but yeah inner drive is probably the best place to say hi and ask us any questions i love your infographics at the moment just they they just make so much sense they're brilliant so what what i love and hate about that sentence is uh i i help design a lot of the psych content uh for it but my colleague is the one who does all the artistic work and makes them look pretty uh and if i had my way i'd just write essays uh, and he overruled me and he was totally right because the graphics I think are really beautiful and, and look brilliant. So thanks. Yeah, maybe we'll get him on the pod next. Yeah, time. he's much wiser <laughs> and smarter than me, so that'd be a good shout. Awesome, Bradley. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sure yeah. me and Mike have got to go do some gotta go and do some reading, Mike, yeah? Definitely. There's so much to take away. So thank you, Bradley. Absolute pleasure. Awesome. Cheers, guys. Listeners, we'll be back in a moment. <laughs> Welcome back. Well, where do we start, Arthur? Um, we normally do one takeaway each. I mean, we're going to try and keep it to one each, but so many takeaways from that conversation with Bradley. I just, it's so nice to A, hear stuff that you're doing as a teacher and an educator. You're like, oh yeah, that's backed up by science. But then also to be like, maybe I should do that. How am I not doing that? And just the more I learn about how students learn, the more I'm like, why didn't I know that? Oh, I wish I'd known this eight years ago. I wish I'd known this before as I was trained to be a teacher. And it sounds like that change is happening in education, which can only be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. What was your key takeaway? More education, less edutainment is, is my takeaway. Um, you know, we've got to stop trying to have bells and whistles and we just got to get strip it back to basics about how students learn and find the right way of delivering the content that we need them to know. Yes, try and make them independent learners. Yes, try and make them inquisitive and problem solvers and everything else, all the soft skills we want students to have when they leave school. Um, but don't be afraid to use direct instruction. Don't be afraid to make learning really, really simple in order to maximise um, attention and, and not overload them cognitively. I, I could say the same thing it's just yeah strip it back just do good teaching just teach really well for me it was when he was talking about the difference between expert and novices which is something i really have always struggled with as a math teacher because that can be a really big gap um and it's about teaching from their perspective and it's difficult it's definitely difficult in the subject i do i'm sure it's difficult in all the subjects i'm sure mike when you teach certain things in p you're like why can't you do this i can do this but like Stop thinking about how should I teach them? It's about how should how do I want them to learn and kind of putting yourself in their seat and seeing that say I think that's a really good thing that we can all do as educators. Like how do we want learn from their perspective? Yeah, definitely. Plan from the top, but how how's I don't want to say weakest, um, but I'm gonna use that word because I can't think of anything alternative. But how's the weakest student in your lesson gonna feel? whilst you're teaching and how can you make it as accessible as possible to them based on their um, experience as a learner, I would say. And I think 
what that what today's pod has shown us about like let's have these conversations in staff room in staff meetings i think so often we don't kind of challenge each other on these kind of things like yes i'm going to teach like this but is that going to work from a working memory perspective because if it's not going to work there's no point in doing it because no one's going to take anything away from it like yeah, yeah such every, a great conversation every staff should have a conversation of what does a lesson look like in our school where students learn the most and what are those elements and how can we make sure those elements are included in as many lessons as possible at our school completely agree uh listeners we hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did uh thanks to bradley for his time uh, if you want to learn more about bradley and inner drive we'll tweet out all their details but if you just google inner drive you're going to find their stuff uh enjoy the rest of your day michael harrowell thank you very much arthur and thank you to you for listening thank you for listening to this episode of tea and teaching if you've enjoyed the content of this episode please feel free to share it with other educators And if you're able to, please leave a review on the platform. And as always, thank you for listening to Tea and Teaching.